Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I and I Think You're Interesting, heading into the heart of awards season, which means the Oscars are just a few weeks away. We're seeing the nominations come out very soon. We're going to have some of the awards for some of the industry prizes like the Screen Actors Guild Awards, the Directors Guild Awards, etc., etc. They are all coming shortly, so we're going to have a better picture of what the best movies of last year were, of 2017. But to, before we really got into that that part of the year, I wanted to do a little preview by talking with some of my favorite critics about the year that was 2017, our favorite performances from that year. We cast a wide net. We selected people from both film and television. Uh, and we're going to be talking about some of our favorite acting. We're going to be talking about like how we think about acting as critics, a bunch of interesting topics. And uh, I, I hope you stick around for it because we have made some iconic Iconoclastic choices, if I do say so myself. I'll be joined by Allison Wilmore from BuzzFeed and Alyssa Wilkinson, the head film critic at Vox. And this week, I am recording outdoors. Uh, I, I just we're we're at the the Langham Hotel in Pasadena, California, where you're going to be hearing a number of episodes recorded from in the future. And I had the chance to record outdoors, and I took it. So if you hear planes, trains, automobiles, all that sort of stuff, that's what's going on. So please stick around. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So my guests today are Allison Wilmore of BuzzFeed. Hi, Allison. Hi, Todd. And Alyssa Wilkinson of Vox. Alyssa, hello. Hey, Todd. Uh, we're talking about the best performances of 2017. As I explained, we cast a really wide net. But I want to start in a place that I know will will you'll hopefully agree with. I, I think Alyssa will. I don't know about you, Allison. I find it really hard to write about what makes acting good. And I'm wondering, like, <laughs> if you have that same problem or if that's just me. Mm, I I definitely have that problem sometimes. I think because, in part, we have changed our approach so much in general towards how we talk about how people look on screen. You know, right. we're so much more sensitive right. about that and all of the ways that's loaded and has been gross in the past. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes that makes it challenging to talk about how people look when they're acting yes. on screen. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes I feel a little mm -hmm. self-conscious about that in ways that I might not have a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Not that that's mm -hmm. all a bad thing. I, and also I find that I have, I've always had trouble separating someone's performance from their character and the way it's written, whether it's sure. the delivery or the dialogue or, or whatever. And also I find that performance is one of those things where when I see it, I know that I think this is great, but articulating why like a person's being is working is, is really difficult, which I think is what good actors do. I'm yeah. always curious if critics trained as actors have an easier time doing this. Oh, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. And I think that also, I mean, there are so many times when the greatest acting is acting you don't think about at all, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. someone just kind of makes you believe they're another person mm -hmm. without calling attention to the craft of what they're doing or the work that they're putting in. Yeah. And so I think sometimes when we talk about great acting, it come, becomes by default the most acting, <laughs> or at least the most kind of like showy acting. Yeah, the eating of scenery. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I one of the things I think about a lot is uh, I think I think Nathaniel Rogers, who's one of my favorite Oscar prognosticators, said this. But the Oscars often vote for the person who has the like best character, like the character that you can find, especially in the lead categories, like the character you find the most sympathetic. In the supporting categories, you can get away with being a little bit more villainous. And mm -hmm. I do think about that a lot. Like if an actor is, you know, obviously if an actor's giving a bad performance, that will stand in the way of you really sympathizing with the character. But like if sometimes I'm responding more to the character than the actor. But I will say that I think in the course of doing this podcast and talking to a lot of actors, I've learned way more about acting than mm. I have from like trying to write about acting for many, many years. Mm, that's I, I appreciate that. And I think that, I, you know, sometimes uh, also in interviews that like they can get bogged down in people talking about craft. But mm -hmm. actually to hear someone who's yeah. a, an actor who is good at talking about the work they do is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to be talking about the best performances or some of our favorite performances of 2017 because we're not ranking them. We're not doing anything like that. But I want to start in kind of an interesting place, which is what's the performance a lot of people have enjoyed, whether it's awards show voters or your fellow critics or something where you're just not quite on board with it. And I'll start by saying 
Uh, I love Sam Rockwell. He's one of my favorite actors. I actually think he's pretty good in Three Billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, but I feel like he never quite gets a handle on a character that's a little all over the place and like has essentially three separate things going on throughout that film. And um, it, it never quite connected for me in the way where I'm like, yes, this person should win a lot of awards, which it seems likely he will. But uh, I, I'm not going to begrudge Sam Rockwell's success. So I feel a little churlish saying that. But <laughs> do either of you have someone where you feel that the, the praise has been a lo- little overheated? Um, I just can't get my head around Gary Oldman in Darkest Hour. <laughs> I saw it and said, oh, that's, that's, I mean, that he's going to get nominated and, and win everything, although maybe he won't win an Oscar. We'll see, but he'll definitely be nominated. Um, and I don't yeah. think it's a bad performance. It's just that it feels like one of those, like, self-consciously over-the-top performances of a historical character that's specifically engineered to get someone an Oscar. And that's really distracting for me as a watcher of that performance. Even though I kind of like grow to like Winston Churchill when I'm watching the movie, I which I don't love either, but that performance just feels very self-conscious to me. Yeah, I was sure, going to say sure. Gary Oldman as well. <laughs> I think that it's it is in some ways such a classic kind of Oscar-y performance that it's funny mm. to think that a few months ago when the film was uh, playing at the Toronto Film Festival, it was like understood that Gary Oldman was a lock to not just be a nominee but like the winner. Mm-hmm. He was going to win. Right. Uh, even I, right. you know, I I didn't connect to that movie much at all, mm-hmm. and I still was like, yeah, I think he'll probably win. Just it seems very Oscar-y, and this year is so up in the air mm-hmm. that that seems no longer necessarily the case. But certainly. I think watching that movie, all it does is call attention to the work that he's doing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's bad work by any means, but it it does not make you feel that Churchill has come back to life and that you're getting an insight into (laughs) his life on screen. Mm -hmm. You're mostly just like, wow, I wonder how long he spent in makeup every morning. (laughs) I know. And and I feel like it's a very theatrical performance as well. Like, I actually think I would like it better on stage because of a lot of it depends on diction and things that are really hard to pull off on stage. But, uh, yeah, I don't think he spent as much time in makeup as um, Shape of Waters. Right. Doug Jones Jones did. But but it certainly has to rival that. You saying that makes me think of the performance it reminds me of, which is Brian Cranston as Mm -hmm. Lyndon... B. Johnson in All the Way, which like, he was supposedly great on stage. I never saw him on stage. And then when he made the HBO movie, it was just too much. Mm -hmm. And like, I wonder if that isn't the case here as well. Mm -hmm. Um, One other other sort of general question before we dive into the list making, which is we started this year with kind of this debate over um, Casey Affleck, who to me gave a tremendous performance in Manchester by the Sea, but also his name was really tainted by uh, sexual harassment accusations that he had settled out of court in the, I think, the mid-2000s, somewhere in that range. And, like, we're talking about this a lot more with figures like James Franco and other people who've been accused of sexual misconduct, uh, both very great and small, if you could put qualifiers like that on sexual misconduct. And I'm wondering, like, how do we sort of deal with talking about performers even outside of the question of awards, because I think um, to me, like if you've done something horrible, like that should sort of, it's not the end of the world if we don't give you the Oscar, if that's like our punishment for you. But like, how do we, how do we like sort of talk about performers who've done terrible things in ways that we can engage with our readers, but also acknowledge that everybody's line for this sort of thing is going to be different. I'm actually going to throw it to Alyssa because you just wrote a long article about Woody (laughs) Allen, which was excellent. So go Um, for it. Yeah, it's it's so difficult right now, I think, because I think everyone is reevaluating their own standards for how they talk about this. I have different feelings about talking about Casey Affleck this year than I did last year. Um, And I don't feel like my attitude towards sexual misconduct has changed, but I think I'm reevaluating how that behavior affects the way people make art and what it means for the art they've made. Because Casey had a movie this year, too, A Ghost Story, which is one of my favorite movies of the year, and he's covered by a sheet for most of it, which I think helped a little bit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And in the case of a figure like Woody Allen, I mean, a lot of what I was writing about was the fact that we are reevaluating things that used to seem like settled matters. And I honestly don't know how to land with these things. I'm more concerned with the business that puts them in those roles and keeps them in those roles right now than I am perhaps with the performances themselves. Um, I don't know how that will shake out with the James 
James Franco issue since that just kind of came up. But the sort of perpetual casting of people who are known to be predatory or otherwise kind of, you know, people who aren't acting above board is problematic to me, especially because so many other people, it seems like, don't wind up with those roles. Yeah, I I think that there are two different ways that you're asked to think about this. And one of them is Hollywood as a workplace, mm-hmm. essentially, and that we should demand of it what we want from any workplace, which is, you know, no sexual misconduct, protection, uh, structures put in place to prevent that from happening, structures put in place to make it easy to report and to protect people who do speak up when it does happen. And I think that those are all kind of forward-looking things. And it becomes a lot harder and more personal when you're trying to figure out what you do with art that has already been made. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. certainly Casey Affleck is someone who, you know, has fallen right like on this kind of timeline wise before the Weinstein story and before we suddenly, I mean, it's funny to think that this has only been a few months that we mm-hmm. have suddenly attached so many consequences to behavior that, you know, we were kind of taught was just going to be accepted in mm-hmm. Hollywood, that it was just, that is the way things worked and people were just too famous or mm-hmm. too powerful or too important to uh, have to face those consequences. And that is a horrifying thing, but that was just business of, as usual until literally a few months ago. October. And so <laughs> yeah. I think that we are still figuring out what the ethics of it are in addition to what is actually actionable. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. This, yeah. this, this award season is going to be so fraught with a lot of tough calls in that. Mm -hmm. And I think that in the end, a lot of them are personal Mm -hmm. and that you are just going to have to go by your own feelings. Uh, I don't know. I'm interested to see. Yeah. And I think it's important for us to be able to say both of those things in the same breath and to not have this attitude that we should talk about people's genius and therefore exclude their known, you know, predatory behavior or that we should only talk about one and therefore we can't even mention the right. other. Now their art is bad yes. or it's vanished, right? right where right. it's still, it's history mm-hmm. and it can't go away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And especially in the movie and TV business, you know, there's a lot of people who go into any piece of art. It's not just one person. Yeah. I mean, I, I in TV, especially like Louis was such a foundational show mm-hmm. for a lot of us who write about television. And like now we really have to reevaluate, you know, how we feel about some of the qualities of that show that felt like they were bracing and truth-telling in a way that they feel bracing and truth-telling in a different way now, which Mm is harder to grapple (laughs) with. Um, What a wonderful way to segue into talking (laughs) about the best performances of 2017. So we've each chosen four of our favorite performances. We're not ranking them. We're just talking about them. Uh, I'm going to lead off by talking about Call Me By Your Name was my favorite movie of 2017. And I am just a little distraught that Michael Stuhlbarg, who I was mm. sure was going to like win the supporting actor Oscar, was going to be like, finally get his Michael Stuhlbarg moment in the sun, <laughs> has kind of been overlooked. And I get that everybody in that movie is perfect. But I think that his speech he gives at the end when he kind of like reveals, it's almost like a card player finally laying out everything they've been holding. And like, you finally see like all this stuff that's churning inside of him and has been the whole movie. And it makes you rethink everything he's been doing in that movie in a really interesting way. The second time I watched it, I paid so much more attention to like how he was reacting in the background of Mm -hmm. scenes. And like, he's just a perfect actor. (laughs) And um, I'm sad that he's not, he's in like 16 of the best picture nominees, probable best picture (laughs) nominees this year. And he's great in everything he does. And I'm, I'm, he was in Fargo. He's, I'm just so sorry that he is uh, not having his moment in the sun like I thought he would. But that monologue at the end of Call Me By Your Name is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like in some ways the fact that he's in so many have kind of, and he's so good in so many movies, kind of yeah. splits attention for him. If it had just been this one performance, I wonder if people would have focused on it more. But it is still yeah. a wonderful think- part of the movie. I do think he's probably getting, like, the, he's so good in The Shape of Water especially, he probably is getting some uh, distracted attention from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but Al- Allison, who, who's someone you have on your list? All right. I went with like slightly not contrarian, I would say, but not uh, maybe all awardsy contenders. Uh, but the <laughs> yeah, one, the yeah. first one I'll pick is, I would say, maybe a, a kind of outside awards contender. And that's Daniela Vega in A Fantastic Woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniela Vega Mm -hmm. plays Marina in this movie. Uh, It's a Chilean film, and it's all about how her older lover dies suddenly. 
and she has to contend with both trying to grieve for him while his family basically just demeans her and denies her opportunities to come to the funeral to kind of continue to have access to her life uh, because they're so ashamed that uh, she is a trans woman and that this family member was involved with her and deeply in love with her, you see from the beginning of the scenes of them together. Uh, And Daniela Mm -hmm. Vega, I don't think has made any other movies before this point and has this incredible old-fashioned movie star face and presence that the film uses to real wonderful ends. Like it just appreciates her on screen in a way that I don't think you see in a lot of movies, like just gazing at her face. And she is someone who is so both so compelling to watch, but also so initially self-possessed that she becomes a kind of mystery that you attempt to solve in which you understand slowly that this is not a movie about someone facing hatred, but a movie that becomes about someone kind of looking at her own identity as people try and undo it and then coming out stronger in the end. And I think that it's entirely born by this, by this really remarkable performance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are, every year there are some good first time performers. And I think that this is one of the standouts this year. Certainly Uh, she's really marvelous. And you haven't, if you haven't seen this movie, it's one of the foreign language film shortlist contenders, and it is definitely worth looking for. Is it still in theaters or is it uh, VOD? I think that it is going to come back to theaters. Uh, I think okay. it was one that got an awards run and then might be coming out again. So Great, great. Alyssa, do you have thoughts on that one? I actually haven't gotten to see it yet, although <laughs> all I hear are good yeah. things. I do wonder sometimes when uh, we critics get sort of – we it's become like – a thing where we're supposed to weigh in on the Oscars as mm-hmm. well. And like that turns into a thing where I do worry about this a lot. The Oscar prognosticators who are like, well, they're going to love Gary Oldman. So then it just becomes like right. Right. A, yeah. a sort of yeah. a sort of a fait accompli. Like Daniela Vega is exactly the sort of name of someone that critics theoretically could be pushing mm. e- to an even greater degree. But we sort of get into this thing of oh, you know, for as many great actress performances as there are this year, like we sort of get into this thing of talking about the same five or six names. And I, I always wonder if there's a way to break out of that shell, you know, yeah, to I be think, like, you know, uh, We internalize the idea of Oscariness maybe more than anyone else, mm-hmm. you know? I think that sometimes mm-hmm. when we talk about awards, we are talking, we're trying to like read the minds or speaking to the idea of Oscariness mm-hmm. more than we are actually talking about the things that we like the most. Mm-hmm. And we get excited, yeah. I think, when the awards performances or films or whatever overlap with things that we actually think are good. Right. But, but why don't we skip that part and just <laughs> talk about the things that we think are the best? I don't know. We do that as well. Yes. But I, I, for some reason at this time of year, yeah. that gets subsumed by talking about this other group of people's yes. ideas of what is good. I'm trying to read their minds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I definitely think that, for instance, Timothy Chalamet, 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 Chalamet is is one of the best. He's like one of the five best best actors of the Absolutely. year. But like, yes. do I really think that, or do I think that because somebody told me? You I really did. think um, that? But anyway, okay, great, wonderful. I'm glad. I'm glad to have that sorted out. But Alyssa, who's who's first on your list? I love Tracy Letts. I'm really. I just everything he does on screen makes me happy. Um, and this year he has <laughs> three. Great roles. So he ha- he plays the father in Lady Bird, my favorite movie of the year, and he's just mm-hmm. stunning and understated and great in that role. He's also in The Post, um, where he plays uh, Meryl Streep's sort of closest friend and advisor, and it's a completely different kind of role, and he's uh, he's almost unrecognizable, I think, in some ways. And then my personal favorite role of his this year was in The Lovers, so good. Um, which is a film that I don't know that a lot of people saw, but it's about um, a married couple who are having affairs with other people, and then right as they're getting ready to kind of break off their marriage, they sort of start sleeping with each other. They have an affair. They have an affair with with each each other. other. (laughs) And it ends in a strange spot as a film, but his performance is so, he's just not your typical romantic lead, right? He's, he's, you know, sort of dad-ish and middle-aged and, you know, it's the kind of performance that I think brings a lot of sympathy to that kind of a role where I want to like know this person. I think he's a, he's a real person. You know, he's a Pulitzer winning playwright and so he's a multi-talented person. He's also married to Carrie Coon, so that's quite a, quite a power couple there. But, 
I think that when I was talking to the writers of the Post, they were saying that the most frightening thing about writing the Post was that they had to write dialogue for Tracy Letts <laughs> to deliver on set. Um, and I, but you would never look at him or hear him and think, oh, he's like super intimidating. He just brings this real warmth to every role that he does. Yeah, yeah, I loved his work. Uh, I loved his work in all those films. I think that. He plays a really difficult character to play in the post. Yes, who is the guy kind of who the bad like guy, wants? But... Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's kind of the bad guy, but kind of not right. the bad guy. And like everybody else in that movie, that movie is not particularly subtle in who is like <laughs> on the side of good and who's on the side of bad. And like he's right there in the middle, and I think that he navigates that beautifully. And mm-hmm. I just I want to reiterate that this is the year of Tracy Letts and Carrie Coon, uh, <laughs> Carrie Coon, who was in Fargo and The Leftovers, and. I left her off my list and I feel bad about that. It's also in the post and like does an impossible thing, which is read says what the movie is about at the very end. Mm-hmm, yeah. And like you still you buy it and you sort of tear up about it. But Allison, do you have do you have Tracy Letts feelings? I think he's wonderful in everything. But yeah, in The Lovers especially, you know, I think it it's one of those movies where I think you have the conversation a lot in terms of indie film. There are always movies with older leads that secretly make a lot of money and they're usually like pretty soft, right? Older audiences go to see them and we always say like, oh, these are underserved audiences and they come out to see these movies. Uh, No one came out to see The Lovers. Mm -hmm. uh, You can find it on Amazon and I do really recommend it. I think in part because it is not a soft movie. Not at all. Like it becomes a really wrenching movie about the idea of a long relationship with someone and just having history. But it is also, in ways that I really admired, a fairly explicit movie. Mm -hmm. And it has two people who are not of the age that you normally see nudity engaging in fairly Mm. frank sexual behavior. And I was thrilled to see Tracy Letts as like a romantic lead mm-hmm. and like a sexually active one um, and he's I, I think he's and funny too yeah he's very funny mm-hmm. he's just very fearless mm-hmm. in, in that movie in particular and I just really admired that mm-hmm. yeah yeah I want to tell my, my brief Tracy Letts story which is uh, I wrote a profile of Carrie Coon last year uh, and so I went up and said hello to her at the end of the Television Critics Association Awards where she had won a, a prize for acting and she, I was introduced, I was talking with her and my wife, and my wife, as a joke, said to Tracy Letts, and what is it that you do? And he got just this, like, brief kind of hangdog expression, and then Carrie Coon started to explain, well, he's, and then my wife was like, no, I, I know who Tracy Letts is. Um, but it was a great moment. It's a great moment. Uh, <laughs> I want to move on. I'm, go- I'm going to stand up for television, because we do have some TV performances on the list, and I want to start with Darcy Carden, mm-hmm. who plays Janet on The Good Place. She's played many variations of Janet. Uh, She's always funny. Like, that performance to me is endlessly... Like, the thing about it is that I didn't quite appreciate it at first in the show because it felt like she was a one-joke character. And the hardest thing to do in television is to find more jokes to tell with a one-joke character. And I feel like, obviously, the writing for her is terrific. But she has herself found within Janet multiple ways to deliver that sort of same joke of I am essentially an omniscient computer program that can do anything and can say anything and can see anything and knows everything. And yet there's something human and relatable about her. So when they write a love story for what is, in effect, a computer program, you're like, yeah, I'm going to go with that. I'm uh, I'm fine with that. Um, Alyssa, I know you're a big Good Place fan, so I, I want to hear you speak to this as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, all of those things. And on top of it, she has to play bad Janet sometimes in the show <laughs> yeah, as well. Bad Janet. Yeah. And it's fantastic. And, uh, you know, I guess this episode has aired, but she's you know, sometimes she has to play good Janet pretending to be bad Janet. And there's a lot of layers going on there that I think are marvelous. And also, I guess uh, part of what I like so much about her performance is that she's not human, but she has these sort of human feelings and human reactions sometimes, but she always filters them through Janet, who is not a human, but also not a robot, um, as she reminds us. And it it reads sometimes, I don't know, in like an intensely human way. But she's also just this wonderful comic relief. And I, I was going back and rewatching the old episodes um, with my in-laws over Christmas and was struck by just how she uh, she's kind of the best performer from the very beginning of the show, with the possible exception of Ted Danson. Yeah, I yeah. like yeah. I love every character in that. Mm-hmm. And I could probably make the case for a lot of cheaty. I feel like a cheaty, <laughs> William Jackson Harper. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just um, but I, I feel like the physical comedy mm-hmm. uh, that Darcy Carden does is so stand out and not something you get to see people do that often anymore. Mm-hmm. I keep thinking of the the scene where she vomits pennies. <laughs> 
And it's so funny. Like, I just watched it again and again because just the way in which she, like, ejects the stream of pennies from her mouth is, uh, it's just great. Mm-hmm. I, I think she's she's really doing something no one else does or even gets to do gets on to screen yeah. right now. I think the thing about it that really works for me is she always returns to that sort of smiling, blithe happiness about her situation no matter what's happening even if she's you know going to be going to be reset which is functionally <laughs> killing her etc like she she is uh, just always there just always sort of chipper until she's and I think that she could turn on a dime in a way that so few other people can and uh, I know she's not going to be Emmy nominated but boy I wish she would be um, not that awards are everything Todd um, <laughs> Allison, who's next on your list? Well, uh, I went with all movies, though there were some TV people that I thought about. And then I thought, you know what? I've been mostly writing about movies. Why not just (laughs) stick with it? But I did want to say that I I do think that this year is like a lot, and this has been the case for a few years, is much stronger in terms of female performances than it has been for male performances, certainly Mm -hmm. with like lead actor. I think that lead actor this year is like a very who knows where it'll go category because there aren't obvious Front runners, uh, aside from you know giving Gary Oldman the win because he did what he did, but I do I will say that having done like way too many awards voting this year, forms of it, I multiple times put this in, and I think people thought I was trolling, but I was not. I love Michael Fassbender in Alien Covenant. Uh, he's one of really I think like if it's debatable whether he's a lead or supporting or both because uh, he plays two roles, but I I think that he's great in it. I do think I I'm a big fan of Alien Covenant. I was actually a big fan of uh, Prometheus. Um, But I do think that Alien Covenant is a little clearer in what it does, even if people didn't want to listen to it, which is, I think it's like basically a dark comedy um, at its about Mm -hmm. humanity as a parasitic species trying to spread itself through the universe. Um, (laughs) You know, and and Michael Fassbender is a stealth star Mm -hmm. of this movie. And I think he's kind of, he reveals in particular in this movie, if it wasn't clear in the first, in Prometheus, that his character, David, is the kind of dark hero of this new trilogy if it ever gets finished as a trilogy. And I think both in terms of how Fassbender delineates these two characters who are both just models of the same android uh, and kind of makes you understand that they have both just experienced different things in addition to having like tweaks Mm -hmm. uh, and one being kind of, I don't know, like neutered in terms of free will a bit more than the other. Uh, But that he also has this scene that is both campy and like deathly, wonderfully serious in which he sort of seduces himself. Mm-hmm. He seduces the other, the Walter, <laughs> the other android. And beyond the just remarkable visual of this, I think it has this kind of genuine sci-fi boldness to it. Like it just goes there yeah. uh, to have someone kind of look at another version of themselves, this non-human, decidedly non-human version of themselves and kind of try to push them out of their programming. And I just, I really appreciated the ways in which he did not try and make those characters seem human. Mm -hmm. You know, they are not. Mm -hmm. Like the whole point of of it is that they are not human, uh, that they are something else and that they might empathize with humanity maybe because they're made to, but that's not a requirement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he's basically playing the devil in that film and it's great. It's It's exactly what I imagine the devil would be like <laughs> like eloquent yes, and kind of, kind of chilling seductive, but like a little creepy right, and also like fond mm-hmm. he is fond of people and that does not mean that he will not do horrible things mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. I, uh, I I think Michael Fassbender should play the actual devil uh, yes. that, that would be great well casting. he did it also uh, but, in um, in the Malick film he plays a very similar yeah, character yeah, that you make like a song. Faustian bargain mm-hmm. with absolutely mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I really, I really liked Alien Covenant. I wouldn't say I, I, I quite loved it, but I feel like I've been thinking a lot about actors who play two different variations on the same character because there's a, an upcoming show on Stars where J.K. Simmons does it, and like everybody's got very different approaches. And what I love is that Fassbender's is so subtle, and yet you instantly know which one you're looking mm-hmm. at. Even though they're essentially the same character, you instantly know which variation on that character you're looking at. And he, I don't, I don't even know how he does it. It must be something with physical, physical carriage or something like that. But Alyssa, who's next on your list? Um, I will go with a TV pick too, which is Andrea Martin, who um, was on both Difficult People and on Great News, both mm. shows I really mm. like, both comedies, and she's playing almost the same 
base character in both of them. She's like the overbearing mom of the main female character in the show. And she uh, is clingy and wants too much in in great news and in difficult people. She's kind of standoffish but also clingy. There's that same kind of quality to her. And I think her performance is great in both shows. What I really like is that she actually does bring the quality of the show itself to that character. So uh, great news is more sweet as a comedy Um, their relationship is sweeter and the show is a little more chipper and difficult people which i love 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 is is a little bit of a mean show um not a little bit it's a lot of a mean show show. i love it so much i know i'm going to miss it Uh rest in peace and i think that she brings those to both those characters and so they're completely congruent with the universe of those shows and sort of how people act in both those shows for a character who we've seen on tv thousands of times before so I would love to see her working more and I'd like to see more on TV that isn't her playing a mom but I'm really happy to see someone be able to pull that off yeah where's the show where she's like a drug kingpin (laughs) out of her retirement community or something exactly Um, I think I think that one of the things I love is I I did a podcast with Bob Balaban Mm. yesterday which people will hear in several months And, like, I think a lot about when you are somebody like Andrea Martin or Bob Balaban where they're like, okay, you're going to play the Andrea Martin part. Mm -hmm. And I think that you're really right is that she finds a way to play that similar part in both of these shows in a way that fits each show's cosmology really smartly. And I I think Great News to me is a show that has a lot of great pieces and is kind of inconsistent. Mm -hmm. One of the great things about it is that it has all these great performances and she's right there. I. I remember when I first read the premise, I was like, I don't know if I want to see a show about uh, like a mom being overbearing in the workplace, but it's not that. It's like she does something about it that just makes it feel like, yes, of course, this woman is entering her daughter's life and, and meddling in a way that... I don't know. I haven't quite seen that take on it before. Allison, do you do you watch either of these shows? I watch both. I feel like sometimes I kind of hate watch great news. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's very close to 30 Rock in mm-hmm. some ways. It's a little less so. It's tried to kind of do its own thing. But for whatever reason, I find that central relationship and the way it's cast as like positive, I find that infuriating Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) because it just seems so unhealthy. And I know that's supposed to be the point, but also I I keep wanting to tell them both, like, let it go. Put some distance between you. But um, but I watched all, I've watched all of it. I've watched every single episode. My feelings are so complicated. Every sitcom is based yeah. in is set in purgatory. Yes. So it's very much right. A, a always, and then resets resets at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, I I definitely it's one of those shows that like I tell people about it and they've never heard of it mm-hmm. and I feel like uh, and then they're always like oh it's from the Thirty Rock people I'm like well. Let me give you just a second here, um, but I think it's a I think it's a fun show. I, I hope people get caught up with it. I have the same feeling about um, just Superstore as a show, which I can't pick a performance off of. But it's another one of those shows where nobody's heard of it, and it's it's actually mm-hmm. like super watchable. Um, and every yeah. performance on that show is oh, good. Too. It's so good. Yeah, yeah, I love it. That is definitely my like. I just need to watch an episode of something. Oh, here's a new Superstore. Mm-hmm. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Happy New Year, everybody. If you're like a lot of Americans, if you're like me, you probably are hoping to drop a few pounds in 2018 that maybe you put on in 2017 or 2012 or 2004, and you'd like to get rid of those in the new year. And if, if that's if that's what you're doing, let me tell you a little bit about Beachbody On Demand. It's an online fitness streaming service that gives you unlimited access to a wide variety of highly effective world-class workouts, and they're personalized to meet your needs. It also includes extensive nutritional content, and it's proved to help people achieve their health and fitness goals. It's really convenient because it's accessible on your computer, on your web-enabled TV, on your tablet, your smartphone, or any other web-enabled device. You don't need to go to a gym or schedule a class. It's all just right there. And your annual subscription is cheaper than a gym membership. It has programs for any fitness level. The workouts range from cardio to weight training, yoga, low impact, and even dance. And there are 600 different workouts, so you probably can find something that will work for you. 
Beachbody On Demand also has nutritional help because abs are made in the kitchen. It provides comprehensive nutrition plans to help you meet your goals because working out is just part of the equation. You'll get access to information on meal prep, a variety of recipes, and simple but proven eating plans. So you need to give this service a try. And right now my listeners can get a free trial membership. That's right, free. When you text THINK to 303030-303030, you'll get full access to the entire platform for free. All the workouts, all the nutrition information, absolutely free. Text THINK to 303030-303030. Let's move on. I'm going to go to my next pick, who is uh, Daniel Kaluuya in Get Out. Uh, this is another pick that has, uh, when I sort of was listing this as one of probably my favorite male performance of the year. It's him or, or Chalamet. I felt like I was way out on a limb and like, this is never going to get awards attention and I'll sound cool if I say this. And now he's been nominated for a bunch of awards. So I don't get to sound cool anymore, but that movie fundamentally to me does not work if he is not there and he is not our guide through the movie. Um, as a dumb white person, seeing the way that he just reacts to all the situations and just kind of hangs back and watches things and like gradually like feels more and more horror at the situation until he realizes that he is literally trapped in a horror movie. That is a movie where you need a, a strong actor to guide you through it. And he is absolutely perfect. I hope it is the star-making performance it should be. Like, I, I've, I've loved him for a while now. He was in a terrific Black Mirror mm-hmm. episode several years ago that people should seek out if they have the time. But I think that, to me, one of the hardest things to do, which is keeping a really, on its surface, ridiculous situation really grounded and really real so you feel... Not just the metaphor of it, but the actual emotion of what it would be like to be in this situation that could never possibly happen. And I think Get Out is full of great performances. I think Catherine Keener's fantastic. Allison Williams is great. Betty Gabriel is terrific. But for me, that movie only works because he's in it. I, I don't know if either of you have feelings on that. I think that, yeah, you know, one of the great things about the fact that award season or best actor has seemed relatively wide open is that Mm -hmm. both like Chalamet has kind of gotten so much attention and that Kaluuya has in a role that I think might have gotten downplayed other years because he has to play the straight man in this wild situation for such a long time. But yeah, he really brings that trauma underneath it, both the trauma of what he's experiencing and all of those tiny slights that he has to deal with, which he, I think, really brings Mm. us wry humor and kind of, you know, while acknowledging it. And then also like the memories that he has to dredge up. The scene, the first time you see the sunken place is really an emotionally wrenching one for what he goes through. And I think he just like, he brings that so convincingly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for a performance in a, a horror film to have persisted this long into conversations about awards is really unusual. And I think part of it is his, his, his performance is the opposite of whatever we mean when we say a broad performance. It's very specific. Um, and yet, you know, yeah. he has to sort of, in, in the context of the social commentary, stand in for a lot of people. So, yeah, I'm just so happy to see him there. Yeah, I think to me, the moment of that movie when I'm most emotionally fraught is it's just a single tear, like, trickling down mm-hmm. his face. Mm-hmm. And, it, like, what a marvelously restrained piece of acting from him. I, I really do hope as uh, as unusual as it would be for the Oscars to nominate a horror performance I hope that he gets in there and I, I think he will. Uh, Allison, who's next on your list? Uh, I went for a real you know, outside of the usual conversation pick for this next one just because it's a movie I love so much and because I really appreciated just the both emotional and really physical work that went into it. It is Kim mm. Ok-Vin in The Villainous, which is a, mm. an, a Korean action movie that I adored that played at Cannes and then came out, got this like kind of small release. It is an absolutely bonkers action movie. Uh, the director was a stunt person before going into filmmaking and so does just like some things where you're like, I don't understand how the camera did that including an opening sequence that is kind of like the old boy fight scene Mm -hmm. in the hallway, except all from the main character's point of view. Uh, Mm. So like first person camera. Um, But it, it is also just this Korean drama worthy soap 
all like it is a yeah. combination of just this wrenching action that apparently uh, she did 90% of the stunts herself, but that it is also oh. this kind of story of this woman who is undercover and, you know, trying to like fight free of this program. You don't need to understand the plot is almost impossible to understand. It's so convoluted, but that she is playing melodrama so earnestly and so kind of sincerely that despite the ridiculousness of what happens, you really like hurt for this person who is like terrifying, but also trapped. And I think that like, I just enjoyed the soapiness of it so much. And I think it's because she is able to transmit pain and this feeling of being lied to constantly and manipulated so incredibly well and I think that that Mm. is just as enjoyable to watch maybe and it comes through maybe best of all in the scene where she has kind of demanded a normal life from her handlers and is getting married and then is told to go assassinate someone with a sniper rifle which she does in the bathroom in her wedding dress and it is so good (laughs) Um, so you know I, I don't like like it's hard to like people who are leads of action movies do not get praised much for their acting but I do think there is a lot of craft that goes into it it's not always just like physical presence and I think that she Kim Bok-Vin puts a lot of work into this and is is pretty remarkable in it. Uh, if you have a chance to see this movie, I think it's on demand and it's a really good time. I have to say, I, I have not seen it, but nor have I. I am all, I am always in favor of great action performances getting their due. Uh, a, a couple of years back, I, I felt like we like obviously like fans did not overlook Charlize Theron and uh, Mad Max Fury Road, but like I feel like. We didn't have the cultural conversation about that character. We maybe could have. Her performance was so phenomenal. I think a lot about how much of acting in an action or an adventure movie is like just physicality mm-hmm. and like how hard that can be to do. But also, how we don't really have the language to talk about that because, like you were saying earlier, we don't. We talk about actors' appearances in very different ways now than we used to at even like 10 years ago. And I wonder if that hasn't hurt talking about these kind of performances a little bit. Yeah. I mean, they're not terribly unlike talking about dance, really, in a lot of ways. Yeah. That, um, it's not just about the choreography, but the way they move through the choreography. I, I've just mm-hmm. left a screening of Proud Mary, which is not going to be the greatest film of 2018, but watching um, Taraji <laughs> P. Henson do those action sequences, which she doesn't get enough of in the film, is great. I mean, she's yeah. genuinely awesome at it. And that's that's the vocabulary we have for that, I think, is the movement. Yeah. Yeah, I I think a lot about how, this is not on my list, but Keanu Reeves Mm -hmm. in John Wick 2, which Mm -hmm. is a movie I reviewed, he really, he feels like he's dancing a duet with the camera. Mm -hmm. And like, that's such a hard, fun thing to watch. Um, But Alyssa, who's next on your list? My next would be Michelle Pfeiffer in Mother. So she's a, it's a bit part in the film that I loved. Um, but so the part of the reason I love it is because I had a decent sense to the point where she appeared on camera of what was going on in this film. I said, ah, this, this is a creation story. This is, this is supposed to be some kind of horror film as biblical narrative. But when she shows up, she's the snake and it's so great. It's not just the writing for the character, but it's actually how she delivers it. So her, I feel like her eyes go snake-like early on. She's the she's the temptress, she's the serpent, and she does it where she's dancing right on the edge of being, uh, until she goes over the edge, of being appropriate and inappropriate. Uh, and it recalls like a lot of people I know, I think, who will sort of dance right up to that line themselves um, in conversation, or they'll ask you questions that are not quite okay, but they kind of are because they say it is. And so she had to really play a character who is both a metaphor and supposed to be a real character. And she's terrifying, especially to any introvert who's watching the film. (laughs) Um, She's terrifying, but she also is just, you know, she is the villain. She's the point at which this sort of evil really enters that perfect home. And I loved it. And it's also just really good to see Michelle Pfeiffer pop up on screen. She also was in Murder on the Orient Express, Mm -hmm. which was not a film I loved. But actually, I think her performance in that is good, but it also served to underline how much cooler it was what she got to do in Mother. She did get kind of the signature moment in Mm -hmm. Murder in the Orient Express towards the end. Yes, she did. When there was this tableau, and it is like the most memorable image in that movie, Mm -hmm. and she is the center of it. Mm -hmm. She also kind of gets that that in Mother as well. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, she's the one I walked out thinking about. Yeah, yeah. I think that there's an interesting level of 
metatextual mm-hmm. to her performance in Mother as well because Michelle Pfeiffer in many ways was the Jennifer Lawrence of the 1980s. True. She's almost serving as like a, a, a warning figure for Jennifer Lawrence, who's the lead of Mother. Allison, I don't think I read you on Mother. Where did you come down on that film? I will say mm. I, I liked it while not being entirely convinced by it. I think that it's a very interesting movie. I do think that in some ways <laughs> I, I feel like I don't agree with Darren Aronofsky's presentation of what he thinks it's about no, at all. I. No, And I wrong. find <laughs> that divide really fascinating. You know, I think in some ways for yeah. me, you know, while there are certainly the biblical themes in it, and I guess you could make the argument there are ecological themes in it, though I don't... Um, I think for me, it is a completely compelling, almost like confessional of an artist kind of saying that I have to put work above uh, everything else in my life as seen from this impossibly giving partner. And that, I think, is like there's something about it that is mesmerizing to watch even if you feel like it's repellent at the same time. It is just such a powerfully raw outburst of these kind of sometimes really ugly feelings mm-hmm. uh, that and then when it goes off the rails I think there is really I, I don't know if I could say that I liked it as a movie but I do think it is certainly one of the most memorable things that I saw in the past year and your point yeah, I'd ta- like oh your point about ahead. Michelle Pfeiffer um, is great too because Aronofsky in in Black Swan does the same thing where he puts Winona Ryder in the film against Natalie yeah. Portman for the same kind of a contrast. So I think that's there, and also you know those those films pair really well. Yeah, yeah, I loved the conversation around Mother. Uh, I, I wasn't wild about Aronofsky trying to define what it was about, like you guys said, but uh, I, I loved that there was a movie that people argued about. And when I heard either side of the argument, I was like, yeah, I could see that. (laughs) Um, I kind of feel that way about Three Billboards, to be honest, which is another movie people have spent a lot of time uh, arguing about. Well, we're going to name our our final performances here, and I'm going to start with uh, Elizabeth Moss and The Handmaid's Tale. This kind of of pairs with Daniel Kaluuya in a weird way because this is another project where it wouldn't work without her. So literally, the visual style of that show is pinning the camera to her face – so that you're seeing every micro gesture she makes because it is a it is a movie or it's a TV show I should say about a world where women are not allowed exteriority so they have to like have only interiority it's one of the few projects where i find like voiceover not overly cloying or not overly explaining what's happening but you almost wouldn't need it because elizabeth moss's face is conveying all the emotions in a perfect way i think it's one of the best cast TV shows I've seen in a long time and that everybody is perfect in their role. But I, 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 had, I shudder to think of like anybody else playing the lead character of, of June slash uh, Alfred. And I think that to me, she gave kind of the TV performance of the year. And I, I, I was happy to see that many other people agreed with me. This is not exactly an under the radar performance, but... I think she's fantastic. Um, I don't know if either of you are Handmaid's Tale fans or detractors. Oh, I I think she's great in it. I will say that after having loved the first episodes, I slowly trailed off and didn't finish the season just because there were times where I don't I think in some ways, like the the way the more the story progressed, the less interested I was in the idea of how these characters might escape this dystopian, you know, society. I I realize that the story has to go forward, but for Mm -hmm. me, the most compelling things were just how it laid out the reality of the society Mm. and this horrifying, horrifyingly short amount of time between that and the flashbacks to this very normal seeming world. I I did not get to watch it, but um, I will say I read the novel and I'm fascinated by being able to watch it, especially because it is expanding, but it is the building of the world that the novel does well. Um, And knowing the camera work, I think, makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I will say that I was immensely skeptical of this project. And there was a there was a period around like mid season when I was like, is this a TV show or should they have made it a miniseries? And then. By the end of season one, I was pretty firmly on, oh, yeah, this is a TV show. This works as a show. Um, I, I do think that – for I love the world building of the novel. 
and I think that they have found interesting ways to expand and explore it. I'm, I, I'm excited to see what they do in season two. Uh, Allison, who's who's last on your list? Uh, I I'm wanted excited to, for this one. <laughs> I wanted to talk about, I think it is one of the performances I have certainly argued about the most and talked about the most and thought about the most this year and wrote about, in fact. It is Adam Driver as Kylo Ren in The Last Jedi, in part because I think it is like such a good performance and such a like mesmerizing performance. But also in ways, I think it almost breaks the movie for me, you know, uh, sure. th- that everyone else in the, the new trilogy hits this spot in terms of their acting, that a very space opera, you know, they are characters and they especially the new movie tries to add complications and kind of a few shades of gray to this world that's been very much good versus evil but i think still like it, it's like i think and i wrote this it's mostly a world that seems to operate in primary colors right uh, and then then you have adam driver as this <laughs> character who uh, you know is just this roiling rage and pain and like uh, vulnerability and sadness and i, I as i wrote He, like, plays his character, and I think that this is a deliberate characterization that the movies kind of support as, like, a school shooter, Mm -hmm. basically, which he, you know, he killed all of his classmates and and before he went off to to join the dark side. And I I think that there is something about the reality that he brings to that that— Whenever he's on screen, I just feel like he he might as well be alone and frequently is just because he's so immensely watchable and real. Uh, but I do also think that sometimes the the movies, especially this new one, struggled to accommodate that because that's like more reality than really a space opera is, in, you know, prepared to deal with. And I do like that. I like these movies. Um, I didn't like The Last Jedi as much as I think a lot of other people did, but I did enjoy it a lot. But his is the performance that I couldn't stop thinking about. I, I yeah. you know, I think in some ways the movie doesn't know quite what to do with him because you know, he's he is such a mesmerizing villain. I think that's why people keep trying to solve him, figure out ways in which he could be a romantic lead or redeem himself. He's also, you know, he's a mass murderer. <laughs> so I don't yeah. know that there's a way that the, the series can really land that. And I don't know that it should. But I am yeah. really happy that Adam Driver is in the role because I do think that that is like the most indelible creation from the new film so far. Right, right. I really like that he's basically serving up his riff on a young Marlon Brando performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like he spends a lot of the movie opposite Daisy Ridley, who's very traditional British theater, Royal Shakespearean company, like just kind of like very high, uh, high class, you know, performance. Uh, I don't think she's a bad actress or anything, but she's doing what you traditionally see in a Star Wars movie. And like somehow I think those two mesh really well together. And for me, that relationship was a big part of why. I like The Last Jedi as much as I did. Alyssa, how how do you feel about this? I'm a huge Adam Driver fan. Part of what I loved about watching The Last Jedi, well, of course, was him. But I brought my mother my second time around, and she said, wasn't he in that movie where he was a poet last year? And I said, <laughs> yeah. I said, she saw Patterson. And, uh, and every time I see him, uh, it doesn't matter what he's doing. Like, I know it's going to be a great performance. And when I saw that he was going to be in... Force Awakens, I was startled by that because of what Allison is saying about the way that you kind of act in a Star Wars movie. But there's also like a little boy quality to what he's doing that I think sort of saves a character that otherwise would really feel like a rehash of characters we've seen before. And I, I, well, I would watch... I, I think I have often said I'd watch a whole movie of Adam Driver just like reading the phone book or whatever because it'd be the best <laughs> thing you'd ever seen. Um, so, yes, I agree very much. Um, and also, I, I will say there's a lot of physicality to this that mm-hmm. is like that Marlon Brando almost. I was thinking about this in the last fight, you mm-hmm. know, in which just the ways he's not like a graceful mm-hmm. like fighter. And he like very much is like careful to be just like this kind of brute force kind mm-hmm. of like just like the ways in which he carries his shoulders and the ways in which. And I just I feel like there's a lot of work that was put into that clearly and a lot of thought that I think is rewarding. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. yeah, it is. It doesn't quite mesh with everyone else, but it's really something. Mm-hmm. I love the emo Kylo Ren Twitter account uh, while still sort of feeling like a lot of people talk about emo Kylo is like, that's a bad thing. But I think he's the villain we need right now. <laughs> this idea of talking about young men who are angry 
and don't quite know what to do with that feeling. I think it's a weirdly like prescient character that in, in 2015, I wasn't as prepared to understand as I am in 2000. Well, now it's 2018, but as I was in 2017. So I really appreciate what driver's bringing to the part in that sense. Uh, Alyssa, who's your who's your final choice? My final choice, I think, is traditional is uh, Sally Hawkins in The Shape of Water. Um, yes. I love Sally Hawkins generally, but in this film, the choice to have her be essentially a silent film actress for the entire movie is, except for one key scene, is a gutsy one, I think, especially when she's the lead. And not just the lead, but the romantic lead. And the fact that she is having this sort of romantic pairing with an also silent character, you know, works well. But the her she has to carry all the emotion of that because uh, the other character just simply doesn't have a lot of facial expressions. And I think yeah. it's looking at her eyes a lot that that drew me to the performance and has really, really burned in my brain the physicality that you can have in a romantic performance with your face. (laughs) Uh, And specifically sort of eye expressions, um, the way your mouth moves, all of these things. I think acting with faces is something that not very many actors do very well in my mind, or at least it's very broad. It's sort of what their perception of what an emotion looks like, and she just actually has those emotions. And then when she actually is kind of speaking, it's in sign language, but she brings intonation to the sign language somehow. Um, It's wonderful and and funny and sweet and clever and all of those things. I think in, in many ways, I can't imagine anyone else in that role or, or I can barely imagine anyone else pulling off that role as well as she does. Yeah. So I think she'll be nominated. I, I love her work a lot. Allison, how, how do you feel about it? Oh, I, I think she's phenomenal in it. I am actually even surprised that I don't think she really, until maybe the National Society of Film Critics, like had not been mm-hmm. picking up a lot of awards or nominations. And I would have guessed that she would have been a front runner. Yeah. I just, I feel like... It's just such a strong performance and such a, yeah, one that has to references to film history, mm-hmm. but it's also, um, it's got a lot of blood in its veins. You know, it is not this like, yeah. it, it's not just all whimsy, mm-hmm. like it's sexual. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's kind of, it's, yeah, funny. It's dirty. It's, um, I don't know. I, I think that she is so alive in this role. You know, there is a scene where, she yells at someone, she yells at her friend, and she does it in sign. And you just like, you sense her, she's like basically shouting with her whole body. And to kind of see someone express that and, and is really, I thought it was great to see. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, I hadn't really gotten to see something like that. And uh, yeah. I just, uh, she's, she's wonderful in it. She's, she's really great. Well, for my last question, we talked earlier about performances that have kind of been overlooked by awards, but I do want to talk about on Oscar night, which person going up there, getting a statue, who's sort of expected to be in the conversation, like who would make you happiest to go up there? And I'll start by saying Laurie Metcalf in Lady Bird has won all sorts of prizes. I hope she wins the Oscar. She is every mom in a way that is like just perfect. And I've, I've loved Laurie Metcalf for years and years and years and years. And it would be great to see her get an Oscar for uh, a role that maybe you wouldn't expect it to be an oscar role on paper. And a lot of it is what it brings to her. So I'd be so happy if that happened. Uh, Allison, who, who's your who's your uh, Oscar frontrunner you'd still be happy if they won? Oh, um, I don't think she's, I don't know if she's a frontrunner. She's like right on the bubble. But Tiffany Haddish for Girls Trip mm. is, you know, has been mm. kind of like on these edges of conversation and is so funny in that and just such a kind of future now comedy star way and it is such this kind of the the kind of role that I think in some ways like best supporting actor actress is for highlighting which is the one where you're like that person is incredible I've never really you know I I, I maybe didn't get to see them in much before but that person should be a star and I think that that she is like classically that uh, and also, yeah. I will say that we are both members of the New York Film Critics Circle, and we did end up giving her a a prize. And she gave this 18-minute speech that was, I think, would eat every other speech's lunch uh, in <laughs> award season. And I would love to see her give another one. <laughs> I don't think it would probably get—I don't know that she would be given 18 minutes. They'd probably drag her off stage. But uh, I think whatever, however many minutes she got would be pretty great. Mm-hmm. Alyssa, what's your thoughts on this? Mine would probably be Willem Dafoe for the Florida Project for two reasons. He is 
really good in the film and he's I think he's playing against maybe not against type exactly but the character feels like such a rich character throughout the film you kind of don't know where it's going the whole time and also because I think the Florida Project is such a wonderful film and I really want more people to see it than have currently it's you know a small film and it's sort of a little film that could but it's it's got so much going on that feels both relevant and and sweet and sometimes a yeah. win like that can push that film into people's uh, consciousness in a way that maybe just us talking about it can't do great great well allison where can people find your work uh you can find me at buzzfeed buzzfeed.com mm. slash allison wilmore and i'm on twitter allison wilmore please look and, me up and <laughs> and Alyssa, where can people find you? I'm all on Vox.com uh, in the culture section. And my Twitter handle is Alyssa Marie, A-L-I-S-S-A. Thank you very much, both of you. And I'm looking forward to more great performances in 2018. Here's hoping. Thanks, Todd. time for the closing credits please don't squeeze us way down into the corner as like you show a preview for whatever's coming up next because these are very important i think you're interesting is hosted and executive produced by todd vanderwerf in case you haven't guessed that's me box podcasting is headed up by marty moe and jackie goldstein our executive producer of audio is nishat kurwa our sound designer is miles ewell our logo design is thanks to victor ware crystal stevens and georgia cowley our production manager is alex allreich our production coordinator is carrie clements our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to p3 post this week's episode was recorded my end at the beautiful langham huntington hotel in pasadena california Alyssa and allison were at the vox media podcast studios in new york our editor this week was jarrett floyd our recording engineer is che brooks please remember to rate review and subscribe to this show on apple podcasts stitcher spotify wherever fine podcasts are sold it really helps us get great guests it really helps us keep the word spreading about what is i'm sure your favorite show on the internet if you want to leave a comment about the show but you don't want to leave it in a review i do read all the reviews but you can also email me at todd at vox.com you can also email the show at itii.podcast at vox.com itii.podcast at vox.com and you can tweet at me at tvoti to vote we will be back next week with some more folks from the world of arts and entertainment media and culture just people i think are interesting and until then remember it's not acting if you're not smashing plates against the wall